0: This is Prayer Amid Pandemic, a podcast to encourage and sharpen the church through telling stories of Christians whose faith were shaped by sickness and by praying with fellow believers around the world. I'm Morgan Lee. Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz was a Renaissance woman from 17th century Mexico. Born an illegitimate daughter of a Spanish captain and a Criola mother, Juana went on to become a scholar, a nun, a theologian, and a
1: poet. She devoted her life to her sisters around her in the convent, and eventually she died of cholera in 1695, having contracted it while ministering to her fellow nuns.
0: Joel Morales Cruz is the author of The Histories of the Latin American Church, published by Fortress Press, he was a contributor to Christian History's issue on Latin American Christianity
1: sister Juana. She lived during the colonial era of Mexico. Basically, her whole life was around Mexico City, most of her life in the city itself. It was a colonial hierarchy. Mexico City had been ruled by the viceroy from Spain. It was a very structured society with everyone in their place, supposedly. It was the jewel of the Spanish Empire for a long time. She never really knew her father. She grew up around very strong women. Her mother was able to handle the family compound, the family plantation on her own. Juana, from a very, very early age, decided she wanted to know how to read, how to study. She learned how to read on her own pretty much by the age of three. By the age of 10, she had wanted to learn Greek and Latin and promised herself if she would cut her hair. She didn't learn her lessons fast enough. She wanted to go disguised as a boy to university because women and girls were not allowed to go to school. One of the great things that she did have was a grandfather who doted on her, and he had a huge library and that she took advantage of. As a teenager, she went to live with family in Mexico City. She eventually became a lady-in-waiting to the vicerine. She was able to charm people there with her knowledge, her skills. However, eventually, after several years in the Viceroy's palace, she decided, you know, this is a time when women had basically two options in life. You can marry or you can join a convent. A married life for Juana meant that she would not be able to study. She would always be having kids she would be subservient to her husband. She would not do what she wanted to do. So she decided on the convent, where women, especially Protestants, we tend to have a very negative view of women in convents. But convent life was a form of independence for many women. For one, they, they weren't married, so they weren't submitted to a husband or anything like that. And they had the opportunity to you know do things that they wanted to do. They could teach. They could have a life of relative ease in some convents. They could be religiously strict. In Juana's case, she could Could write and she could study and she amassed a huge library, what many people think is one of the largest libraries in the Americas at that time, of over four thousand books. She had followers who would visit her all over the country in the convents, sort of foyer, I guess you could say, to visit with her, to talk to her. She had correspondence from all over the Spanish Empire. While she was protected by the viceroy and the viceroy of the time, she did all right and she wrote a ton of poetry, a ton of church. Dramas, I guess you could say, Christmas carols. Eventually, she delved into theology, and that was in some ways her downfall. She's very aware of the world around her. She had learned Nahua since the language of the natives from the time she was a little girl. She was able in her poetry to emulate the rhythms and the slang of the African people around her. And she even wrote some of her poetry in Nahua. She had an eye out towards the people who were on the underside. She was a very fierce critic of men's prerogatives. One of her famous poems attacks men for the hypocrisy of, let's say, hitting on women and then blaming the women for for everything else that happened. In many of her writings, men come off as very sort of ghostly figures. There's no one really concrete. But women, women come out as concrete, almost three-dimensional figures. One of her most famous Plays is called The Divine Narcissus, where she's taking Greek mythology and applying Christian theology to it. If you remember the myth of Narcissus, Narcissus falls in love with his own image in a pool of water. Or Juana, Christ is the divine Narcissus who falls in love with his image, the image of God reflected in humanity. And, and it's a play that's supposed to be presented to the Spanish court, where she draws parallels between. The god of the corn, as she puts it, that the Indians celebrated, and the Holy Eucharist and communion, where both are venerated as images of God. So she has got an eye and an ear for the people around her, for her own gender as well, and for the second-class role that women have in society. Wow, what an absolutely
0: remarkable life. But because this is a podcast that is about sickness and illness, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't also just talk about the role that disease played, especially as you're having folks from Europe bring all their germs (laughs) to what later becomes Mexico. So maybe you can speak a little bit about what that looked like
1: as well. And as well known, much of the demographic collapse of Native peoples throughout all the Americas, North, South America, the Caribbean, was due to disease that was introduced by Europeans, for which Native Americans did not have a natural resistance. In terms of Mexico and the New World, a great majority of the Indians had passed away, had died due to smallpox, cholera, other epidemics, and so on, for which they didn't have a natural immunity. Now, by the time we get to Sor Juana's time, things have stabilized a lot, especially in places like Mexico City, where you have a large urban population that included not only Spaniards but a lot of native peoples, a lot of mixed peoples. You have a large population of African slaves. You also have a population of Chinese people who were who had come in from the Pacific, through the Philippines and so on. In terms of disease and, and, and so on, it, in catching disease, things had stabilized by the late 17th century. But you had another problem going on that has a bigger picture to it. Mexico City is set in a valley. The city of Tenochtitlan that the Aztecs built on which Mexico City was built was constructed on a lake. So you have a swampy lake, a city built on it, in a valley that's on a plateau. When the Spanish arrived, they wanted to make Tenochtitlan the capital city that they need to make this big, glorious city. They needed wood. And where did they get that wood? They got it from the mountain sides around what would become Mexico City. By the time we get to Sor Juana's epoch, a lot of the woodland that existed had been stripped bare, had been cut down to create this massive city. One of the things that trees do is it holds moisture in, right? Whenever it would rain, whenever it would storm, there was nothing to stop that water from coming down into the valley itself. And so Mexico City was the victim of floodings over and over and over again for a very long time. Now, what do you have when you have a lot of flooding, when you don't exactly have a modern sewer system and there's a lot of rain going on? What happens to the crops when there's too much rain? It rots. And so there goes your food supply. And what do you have when you don't have an adequate food supply? People get sick. What do you have when you have contaminated water? People get sick. What do you have when you have all this entire population of sick people living next to one another? More people get sick. And so you had epidemics that, that would arise periodically that people had to live with. Disease was definitely a part of Mexico City at the time, in great part because of the environmental damage that the Spanish had done to the countryside.
0: Joel, you have given us such a very rich understanding of everything that was happening in Mexico City in the 17th century. I think it'll help us really illuminate what Juana's life really was like. I want to go back to that right now. So we've kind of gotten up to the point where she has joined this convent and decided to devote her life to religious service. Given the stuff that we've just talked about with regards to disease and suffering and so forth, how does that begin to show up in her writings?
1: It really doesn't. By the time we get to the big epidemic that ended her life, she had stopped writing in the 1690s. There are several incidents that take place. One is a riot in 1692. Because of a big drought, there's a food shortage. And who suffers most during any food shortage or drought or epidemic? That's the poor, the people on the outskirts. And so the Indians, poor whites, and the mixed classes— they basically rioted. They set fire to the viceregal palace, it was put out. The viceroy blamed it on alcohol, of course, but it was definitely a political movement where the rallying cry of the dispossessed was, long live the king, but death to the government. So it's a period of social unrest. There is a cholera epidemic in the mid-1690s. Shortly thereafter, there's a big mystery in her life she stops writing. She gives up her 4,000-book library. She goes into a life of service, as far as we can tell. It's a period of silence. If different people wonder what caused this. On the more conservative Roman Catholic side, I believe that she had a conversion experience and she gave up all this secular learning to follow God and to quiet down as a woman and to just live in service. We really don't know what happened. Personally, I think that she's not a modern woman who can separate church and state and church and life, even in her own mind. She's still a 17th century woman. In the 17th century, if there's plague, if there's cholera, if there's drought, if there's disaster, if there's social unrest, what goes into your head? We did something to offend God. And it's quite possible that she must have felt this very individually, that maybe she in her writings had offended God.
0: It seems that Wanda ultimately sacrificed her life, right, to look out for those that were suffering around her. And there's not that much of a record of how that really impacted her because of the fact that she kind of went silent. And that's its own legacy in a weird way.
1: And because we don't have her voice at this time, we don't know what her mindset was as she served others. Was she happily serving her sisters? Was she depressed? She committing suicide by cholera we have no idea of what her mindset was the one hint that we do have is that when they were cleaning out her cell her apartments basically is that they found even though she no longer had a library she'd given away all her scientific instruments she'd given away everything but they found some scraps of paper and she had begun to write some more she'd begun to write again so that tells me that she had some hope that things would change that maybe the crisis would be over at some point the crisis of, of the pandemic or social unrest whatever it may be that she lived in some hope that she could go back to that which she loved so very much
0: Joel what would you say that the church as it experiences the pandemic currently could learn from Sorwana today
1: Things are very complicated disease doesn't come just like that there are social and economic reasons for pandemics and for a social unrest. Things are not always very black and white, even for those of us who are living in the moment. Sometimes we need a little bit of distance and pausing to listen to the people around us to see what is going on around us so we can better understand these things. That's one thing we can learn from the times that Juana lived in. These issues such as the riots, such as the pandemics and so on, had very complicated causes, had very very complicated effects also that resulted in affecting the rest of society at the time. Whatever we feel, we may feel that is God's call to us, the gifts that God has given us, to just go right ahead and do them, experience them, and try and serve God and one another in whatever way that we can. Juana probably also realized that she can probably help out better feeding her sisters who couldn't feed themselves more than she could as a writer. And so there's a time and a place for writing and for speculating and for doing poetry and drama and all this other beautiful stuff that God puts on our lives. And there's also a time for rolling up our sleeves and serving others in in a different way. We have to be ready to take up that call whenever it's necessary.
0: Thank you so much, Joel, for telling her story.
1: You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Here's the latest coronavirus news in the world in church for the week of June 15th. To protest Argentina's continuing ban on religious services, one evangelical church in San Lorenzo, Santa Fe, has opened as a bar. The church, now a bar, included bar tables being placed inside the church and pastors dressed as waiters carrying Bibles on trays, as The Guardian reported. We want to exercise our constitutional right to practice our faith, said Pastor Daniel Catenio. Bars can open, shops can open. Why are they discriminating against us? 49 Catholic schools have permanently closed since the pandemic, displacing more than 8,100 students, according to the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom. Another report said that the number could be as high as 100. According to Axios, schools that have closed so far have income enrollments of Black and Hispanic students, particularly in low-income, inner-city neighborhoods than private schools do on average. Many American churches and ministries fear that the pandemic would decimate their levels of giving. Instead, most saw giving remain steady or grow during stay-at-home restrictions, according to a survey of more than 1,300 Christian ministries released last week by the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. As Christianity Today reported, total cash giving in April 2020 equaled or surpassed April 2019 giving levels at 66% of the churches and 59% of nonprofits. 72% of churches and 61% of Christian nonprofits said that their April cash gifts met or exceeded January 2020 levels. To read the rest of the story and for more coverage on how the church is responding to coronavirus, please visit the link in our show notes. Because of the global nature of this crisis, we believe it's important to hear from our sisters and brothers in Christ from around the world.
2: I'm Ye Nelson Sando from Juba, praying for our nation. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come before you today to thank you for your faithfulness and for your goodness. I want to pray for our country, South Sudan, for this pandemic that has already reached us. That, Lord, you may send your healing hand upon us. Stop this pandemic from spreading across the nation. We want to pray also for the other nations who have been heavily affected by the pandemic. That, Lord, you will have mercy on them and send your healing power and stop this pandemic in all these nations. Lord, also I want to thank you that in the midst of this pandemic, many people are turning to you and are coming to confess you as their Lord and Savior. I pray those who have turned to you may find rest and peace in you. I also pray, O Lord, that you may turn South Sudanese to you and the rest of the world, that they may find salvation and peace in you. Help people in the world that they may know you. Help us to resist all the temptations that takes us away from you, that we may find rest and peace in you. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.
0: Prayer Amid Pandemic is produced by myself, Morgan Lee, along with Matt Linder, Mike Hosper, and Eric Petrick. Music is by Urban Nerd Beats, Rod Ridiment, and Oliver Duval. Prayer Amid Pandemic is available wherever you get your podcasts. Please help us spread the word about the show by sharing about it on social media or recommending it to your friends. The best way for you to help is by rating and reviewing it. Podcasts. As a reminder, if you'd like to support this show and our ministry, you can do so by subscribing to Christianity Today at orderct.com slash podcast. If you have feedback, please send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com or on Twitter at podcasts. We'll see you soon.